we say and do. Amen. Thank you, Mom. David Manzione would stop parking in the visitor parking. She wouldn't have to make those announcements. <laughs> well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. So I wanted to start with kind of a, uh, a challenging story, one I will never forget. Um, there was a, it was a number of years ago in the church. There was this military family, and they had been coming to our church for a number of months, and at one point, uh, we'll call him Jonathan and Susie. Jonathan just asked if he could get together with me in kind of a stern look, and I was like, hmm, something is up. So I met with uh, Jonathan, and uh, he was in the Army, and as he was sharing, uh, the, the bottom line was that he said, I believe that my wife is having an affair on me. And he was trying to figure out what to do in that circumstance. So we're talking through it, and then finally he said, Pastor, would you help me confront my wife in this adultery? And my thought was, oh, that sounds terrible. I really don't want to do that. And I'm not sure it's appropriate for me to do that. So we continued to talk through it, and I really was concerned with Jonathan's intent and motive. I, I'm committed to helping marriages and healing marriages and, and fighting for marriages. And I thought if his intent is anything but reconciliation and restoration and forgiveness, then didn't seem appropriate, but indeed, as we talked through it, he said, that's my intent. He took responsibility, said, I, I've got a, a, a part to play. I'm aware of my shortcomings and my failings and the difficulties of marriage. I own that, and I see that, and I love her. I want to fight for my marriage. So I perceived that this was an intent of reconciliation and healing. And so a couple weeks later, met with both Jonathan and Susie. And as we were there, Jonathan started to share that he knew and the reasons that he knew. And there was a little bit of denial that happened and then tears and confession. And then Jonathan started to cry. And he started to confess. And honestly, I started to cry. Because he was saying, I love you. And I get it. I, I'm not blaming you, it doesn't all fall on you. I, I want to fight for our marriage. Would you fight with me? And she said yes. And so even as I was sharing a way forward and leading in prayers of forgiveness and reconciliation, I was, I was weeping because 
in that moment I saw the love of the Father for us. In the midst of forgiveness and re reconciliation and healing and love. And as I have reflected on that story, I've reflected on the story that we're going to look at this morning. It's a story that's way back in the Old Testament. If you've brought your Bibles, great. We have some Bibles located in uh, the front of the seats in front of you. We will have it on the screens. But this story is from what's called a minor prophet. It's a, it's a smaller prophet, Hosea. And oftentimes, uh, you should be mindful of this before we read this story, that oftentimes in the Old Testament, God wouldn't just speak through prophets, but he would ask them to do sometimes somewhat outlandish things as a picture, as a visual of what he was saying to the people, that by the, the actions of the prophets, that they would understand a little bit more of the words and the intent of his heart. And so that's really what Hosea is. Is Hosea, he's asked to live in a particular way as a, a metaphor. His uh, life becomes a metaphor for the message that God is sharing through him. And I'll be honest with you, it's a tough metaphor. It's a tough real life circumstance for Hosea. Uh, it's, it's hard for me to wrestle through sometimes what God asked him to do. But again, as we read, just would you hear, would you listen for the heart of the Father for you and I? Hosea was preaching just before there was two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom and in history, the northern kingdom would fall to the Assyrians. And Hosea is preaching just before the fall. We'll start at verse 1. Hosea, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Bari, during the reign of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, two kingdoms, Judah, Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children. Kind of a bummer of a call as a prophet. Go and marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. You see, again, God is inviting Hosea to live out the message that he's speaking to his people. So he married Gomer. Uh, by the way, this chapter is probably the chapter that contains the worst names in all of Scripture. <laughs> Gomer is bad for a guy, right? But for a woman, yowzers. Daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu, a previous king, who mass uh, for the massacre of Jezreel. Right There was an overflow of a king 
uh, overthrow of a king. And so for that, uh, that murder and assassination, he was bringing consequence to that. And I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Now, can you imagine if a prophet today said, by the way, United States, because of your sin, I'm putting an end to your nation. That was the declaration that he was saying through Hosea, a big deal, devastating to the people of God. Uh, Gomer, verse 6, conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved. How would you like that as a name? <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Thanks, Mom. Not loved? Really? Uh, for I will no longer show love to Israel. I, mean, I think that's more devastating than the first. For I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, the southern kingdom, and will save them not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son, then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. That's the covenant that was central to the identity of the people. He chose them through Abraham and he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And God is saying now, no more. Not my people. I am not your God. Can you imagine devastation after devastation after devastation? Yet there's grace in the midst of this. Verse 10, yet, yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. There's a trickle of hope. There's seeds of hope. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel, a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Now, this is the story. Devastation. The northern kingdom is about to fall and then later the uh, southern kingdom will fall as well. God told them, he's saying, because of your sin, because of your adulterous ways, because of your murder, because of your idolatry, because you've turned your heart away from me. My, your God revealed all of those things. I'm removing it and taking it away. And he's using the story of Hosea and Gomer and the three children to illustrate powerfully what happens, it's implied, is that Gomer will have the three children and during that or after that, she leaves Hosea again, the prophet, 
she continues to be promiscuous. It seems, it's implied that she leaves the kids with, uh, with Hosea and that she not only becomes promiscuous and adulterous, but she, she lives in such a depraved way that she becomes and falls into slavery. Slavery. And it seems like normal uh, human relationships that the appropriate thing would be that Gomer would just say, or, or Hosea regarding Gomer, just say, okay, I'm done. And I, I loved her. We had children together. And now she's not just promiscuous, she's like in the bonds of slavery. Chapter 2, I'll let you read that on your own. It looks at the nation. But I want us to jump to the short chapter 3 and listen to how God instructs Hosea to handle the circumstance. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to God, other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes, that was part of the uh, worshiping Canaanite gods and, and all the idolatry that was there. So I bought her, this is Hosea, first person, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer, and a lathek of barley, not very much. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. And I will behave the same way toward you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord, to his blessings in the last days. Again, a foreshadowing of not just Christ Jesus, but also the new covenant in that way. Can we just take a step back from this story and go, what? What's happening here? How, how powerfully, what is God communicating through Hosea that he would choose, that he would command to find a promiscuous wife, give these names, and she still runs off, and then he says, it feels like in chapter one, he says, I'm done, I'm out. You guys are rebellious people. I'm gonna choose another people. Maybe the Italians will be better. You know, whatever, right? But he doesn't do that. He says, no, no, no. Hosea, would you buy her back off the slave block? Would you break the chains? Would you love her again and invite my people to love me back once again? Amazing. 
incredible. I want to invite us to allow this story to, to reframe our, our very understanding and God's desire for a relationship with us as his people. Two things I want us to think about first. What this story says about the love of God for us. His desire for a relationship with us. And then also for us to think about what it says about the response that he's inviting you and I to. Let's talk about his love first and foremost. I believe this story reveals this love that's a jealous love, yes, but also a tender and an undying love that never ceases. And the first part of the love that I see in this is that he loves us and yet he disciplines those he loves. That the love of God for us is not simply sentimentality. It's not, this is a word, you can look it up, but it's, his love is not a schmaltziness. Someone confirmed that, that that is a word, but I'm pretty sure I found this as a word. Schmaltiness. He's saying, I don't love you, and saying, oh, you know what? How you respond doesn't really matter. No. He says, I'm your creator. I knit you together with plans and purposes. No one else besides me puts you together and will teach you how to live this life. I love you with an all-in love, and I'm in inviting you to respond to me with an all-in love. Listen to what he says um, to the, the children, you know, with their terrible names. He says this in uh, Hosea 2.2, rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife. You can hear the the jealousy and the, the righteous anger in God towards his people. And I am not her husband. Let her remove that adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Yes, God is a God of love. We know that it's all through scripture. We hear that in our culture. Absolutely, God is a God of love. But our sin matters. Our lives matter. What we do, how we live in our relationships, how we live at work, how we respond to God's love matters. He cares about that. Hebrews 12 says this. He quotes Proverbs 3. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. He loves you so much that he doesn't just say, you know what, however you want to live, it's okay. No, he rebukes and chastens everyone he accepts as his son or children. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. I was talking to a young adult a little bit ago, 
And he was sharing about all the struggles. He had uh, car issues, he had work issues, you know, relational issues, kids issues, all these kind of stuff. And he says, you know, it's almost as if someone upstairs doesn't like me. And I said, yeah, it doesn't sound like God likes you at all. No, I didn't say that. I just have these images in my, you know, that's how I play it out. But, but really it was an indication that, you know what, I, I tried to say in so many words, I think God's trying to get your attention. He disciplines those he loves. He cares about the actions and the relationships of his children. If you're feeling that chastisement, it could be an expression of God's love. Not that he doesn't like you, but he really loves you and cares about you. Here's the second aspect of God's love is that God's love endures forever. That God's love is, is available to us again and again. It's cliche, but sometimes cliches are cliches for a reason. He's the God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and seven times 70 chances. He even when we stumble, even when we fall, he woos us, he invites us back to love him again. Again from Hosea 2, I will betroth, that's an old word, to betroth, it's a, a little bit more, it's like an engagement, but a little bit more serious and significant of a commitment, really marriage like that. I will, he says this to you and me, I will betroth you to me forever. And then listen to the, the nature of the relationship that he wants with us. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love, in compassion, in love and in compassion lost my place. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. Again, Psalm 136, his love endures forever. Have you ever given up on someone? I mean, not the way that, you know, sometimes we're supposed to give up on a relationship like when we are pursuing someone and we share with someone that we like them and they say, it's not just, uh, I'm not there with you. That's when we should let go of that, right? If we don't let go of it, then it's called stalking, right? <laughs> but I'm not talking about that kind of thing. I, I'm, I'm talking about there's sometimes in relationships that, that we're called to, to not give up on the person. I remember there was one uh, individual, it was a previous church, Todd, and he was wrestling with a lot of stuff, and he, he was married, and Todd and his, his wife was a little bit Gomer-ish. Now that's a word, all right? <laughs> but she would, and there were drugs involved and so forth, and, and she was promiscuous, and he would get so jealous that he would end up in jail. 
and I was trying to work with him and journey with him and so forth. And he went to jail. I would visit him in jail, talk through that. And really, he was trying so hard to do the right thing. And I cared about Todd and got out of jail. And then, bam, something happened. He was back in jail again. And like working with that. I think it was, I can't remember how many times, but I think it was the third time when he went to jail. I'm like, I'm done. I've tried my hardest. And I didn't go visit him the last time. Wouldn't you know it, he got out of jail and that's when he got his life together. And I learned something about that. That God does not give up. That God perseveres. That he pursues. That he goes after you and me. I think sometimes some of us have committed sin. And like, man, I wonder if God has done with me. I wonder if that was the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of my life. And the story of Hosea and Gomer is no. God is not. If you are breathing, he is not done with you. He's still pursuing. He's still inviting. He still wants a No matter what you have done or where you're at, he's pursuing and he's after you. And then finally, this aspect of his love. He buys us back. He buys us back. And many, hopefully, you saw in this a picture of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul says this about Jesus. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom That's an exchange. He redeems us. He pays the penalty of our sin because of his love. And he died on the cross. He buys us back as a people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. This incredible action foreshadows the gospel and Jesus' death on the cross. You know, and I was wondering, and honestly, I told the teaching team, it's hard for me to preach Hosea. Because I just imagine the dialogue between Hosea and God. We don't get any of it, but, you know, some of the prophets, like Jeremiah and Jonah, right, they complain to God, like, especially Jeremiah. He's like, God, this isn't going well for me. Nobody likes me. Right? He complains about that. Can you imagine what Hosea might have said? <laughs> like, really, God? I have to marry a promiscuous woman? And these are the worst names in the history of the Bible. No way. I mean, my kids are going to hate me. And then maybe he got through it, and he's like, okay, God, I'm good. Maybe, you know, it's better if Gomer just let, will let her do her thing. And we'll focus in on the family here. And God says, nope. I mean, there's a, there's a humiliation on Hosea's part, right? There's this, like, the emotional pain that he must, to buy back your adulterous wife, to, to give money for her? Ugh. And I thought, Is there this 
humiliation of God's love for us. This, this reckless abandon. And that brought me to the cross. That we have to understand the love of God for us through the cross of Jesus Christ. This willingness to be broken, this willingness to be betrayed and and left, this this willingness to be humiliated as, as soldiers struck him and mocked him and placed this thorn of uh, crown of thorns on his head. The the sign of the, the king of the Jews, this, this mocking. That's the love of God and the willingness to humiliate himself for you and me. And I don't think we deserve it. And yet I'm thankful for it. How do we respond to this kind of of humiliation? How do we respond to the love of God? Just briefly, two ways. One is we turn back our hearts. He invites us to again and again turn back our hearts because our hearts are his. I remind you that God is not looking for your wealth. God's not looking for your religious rituals. God's not looking for your empty words or your inauthentic expressions. You know what God is looking for? He's looking for your heart. When you got, some of you are married, when you got married, you weren't looking just to share material wealth with the other person, right? What were you looking for? The heart, the the love of the other one. Listen to Joel in terms of the new covenant. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. That was a a Jewish practice, right? It's showing that you would rip your shirt, right? In in repentance, showing you'd put ash ash on your uh, uh, forehead like we did for Ash Wednesday. But he said, forget all of that. I'm not after that. You know what I'm after? Your heart. I want your heart before everything else. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. So rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. He's not looking for that superficial repentance. He's not looking for that superficial faith he's looking for our love back he loves us with this reckless even humiliating love and he's inviting us our only creator to love him back 
two pictures. I was reading, there's this author of, uh, it's called Sitting at the Feet of the Rabbi Jesus. These authors, they go back and they were looking at uh, um, Jerusalem. They returned to Jerusalem and to Israel and they're saying, how did the, the Jewish culture affect the life of Jesus? And can we understand his life and ministry a little bit more from the Jewish culture? And so one of the... Um, authors, Anne Spengler, she was flying back and, and she got on a, a plane, an airline that many devout Jews fly, El Al Airlines. And she said, she, she says, I got two pictures from there. The first one was this. There was an Orthodox Jew and she said, I was trying not to look at him. He was winding a long strip of leather around his arm and he was observing the daily custom common among Orthodox Jews, binding boxes called, I can never say it, tefillin, to both head and arms. These boxes, I knew, contained parchment of scrolls inscribed with the ancient command recorded in Deuteronomy 6, 6, and 8. Remember, we talked about that in our last series, where we put scripture on our forehead and around our arms, right? There's this commitment to God, and so she's sitting in this uh, airline, and she's trying not to stare as he's wrapping the, the leather around his arm and his forehead. And she said that as he's doing this, he's reciting scripture in, uh, in Hebrew. And later she found out that as he's wrapping these boxes around his arm and his forehead, this was the scripture he was saying. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I'll betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. This young Orthodox Jew was trying not to repeat the sins of his people. He was recognizing this, this unrelenting, this merciful, this love of God. And he was trying to give his life back to her. And then she goes on and says, there was another teenage girl piously, piously bent over her prayer book. When she wasn't sleeping through the long flight, she was reading and praying and rocking rhythmically back and forth as she read and meditated on the Hebrew words. Later, I asked a white-haired rabbi I met in Israel about this practice calling devining. So maybe you've seen the Orthodox Jews reading and praying and they do this rocking and that's what the, the teenage girl was doing next to her on the plane, this rocking motion during prayer. I discovered in a way of, it's a way of expressing one's whole self, body, and soul is caught up with God. The old rabbi explained that the movement of the body mimics the flickering flame of a candle, calling to mind the saying that the candlestick of God is the soul of a man. The candlestick of God is the soul of a man. He's saying there is no other creator 
There is no other God. There is no one else that can lay claim to your life but God alone. And I will not give up on you, no matter what you do or where you're at. I've loved you with a reckless love again and again and again. Would you love me back? And finally, I think this response is that we would love him again, but with a fidelity. That word fidelity it, it, it means that we make just like in a marriage, we say, because I'm connected to you in this way, because I have a covenant with you, I will not love in a marriage way anyone else. Because of this relationship, I will choose not to do things with others. You know, when I work on the sermon, I'll just have YouTube and I'll play different form, you know, classical sometimes, sometimes rock and roll, sometimes worship music, and I had worship music going on, and they were singing, I don't even know what song. It was a church, and then they were just kind of in the in the moment of worship, and I heard this refrain: I don't want any other lovers. I don't want any other lovers. I don't want any other lovers. And then they sang, you can take it all, just give me Jesus. You can take it all. This series is from the Fernando Ortega song, Just Give Me Jesus. You can have all this world. This is this love with an intensity and an abandon, a focus and a fidelity. This is how God loves us and how he invites us to love him back. I want to invite the worship team forward and I'm just going to leave you with this final story. It's from the story of uh, King Hezekiah. And uh, he's probably my favorite king of the Old Testament outside of David. And Hezekiah took power after a really long line of terrible kings that were adulterous and wayward and struggle, and God was really upset with the people. And Hezekiah comes, and he starts to live with a pure heart. He starts to say, you know what, as a people, we're not going to worship other gods and raisin cakes and We're not going to do all those things, and we're going to trust you. And the Assyrians were coming and all of this, and people were saying, we need to make all these covenants and all that. And he was saying, no, 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 we're just going to stay with God. And God um, is pleased by Hezekiah's life and response. But then it came time for Hezekiah to be taken, to die. And he's on his deathbed, and he's wrestling with his deathbed. And a prophet, Isaiah, comes and says, King, just want you to know, you need to get your life together because you're going to die from this illness. And Isaiah, the prophet, is walking out, 
And it says that Hezekiah turns towards the wall and he prays this prayer. He turns his face to the wall and he prays, Remember, Lord, how I walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion. And he did. And have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Well, the prophet Isaiah is on his way out, and God says, Isaiah, turn, Isaiah, turn around. Go back and tell him I heard your prayer. And I'm going to heal you and give you 15 more years. And I love the story of Hezekiah because he's in the midst of a really broken and depraved country and a culture that was going south. He lived with wholehearted obedience in a way, a wholehearted devotion that God is inviting. And God said, I hear those prayers. Bring healing and restoration. What would it look like if we were a people that lived with a wholehearted devotion to God? We recognized his, his reckless and even humiliating love for us. And we responded as a wife responds to a husband in love. Father, it takes my breath away, your love for us. That's unrelenting. It continues to pursue us. That doesn't give up on us. Despite our sin and our waywardness, when we turn our hearts away from you, our, our maker, our creator, Lord, teach us, especially in this time of Lent, to confess, to recognize your love for us on the cross, and to repent, turn towards you.